This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Lends Me Your Ears. This is a film podcast where we see something new in cinemas or on streaming services and compare and contrast that movie with those from the past, a little like traveling through time, movie inversion. <laughs> My name is Karsten Knox. I write a blog called Flaw in the Iris at HalifaxBloggers.ca, and I'm the movie guru at CTV Atlantic. And my name is Stephen Cook. I'm an arts and lifestyles writer with the Chronicle Herald, and uh, I am recording all my parts for this show backwards. <laughs> On this episode, we're talking about the remarkable career of British-American filmmaker Christopher Nolan, starting with his newest blockbuster, The Palindromic Tenet. Welcome back to Lens of Your Ears. I'm Stephen Cook, and it's a real pleasure to be back here on the show again. We've been on a bit of a hiatus, but uh, we're back. There are new films in the theaters, and it's uh, it's a reasonably exciting time to be back on the show and having some fresh films to look at, as well as some inspiration for some some filmographies to go back and, and take a look at as well. And uh, we're, we're, we're starting big. With, uh, with one of the most anticipated films of the year, uh, Tenet, directed by Christopher Nolan, uh, an, a non-franchise adventure, quasi-sci-fi spy thriller <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> that uh, is, is, is all over the board and uh, takes a pretty wild concept and, and really, uh, really goes for broke with it. Yeah, this is something special, of course, as we've come to expect for Chris, from Christopher Nolan, writer, director, producer. He's he's got he's got a unique place in Hollywood in that he is a he's a super creative, intellectual, cerebral filmmaker who happens to play his playground is the big budget blockbuster, and he he is he eschews the franchises that we've come to know those sort of. Uh, intellectual properties where you know it's that are easy to market and easy to brand he's he tends to create unique and individual films but he does it in such a way that pays homage to films of the past he's clearly a fan of james bond and uh thrillers from the 70s and from the 80s um yeah and he's uh you know he's he's a really a special filmmaker and, and it's always an event when one of his films opens. Uh, and here's your, uh, here's a little bit of a ridiculous and pointless trivia, but, uh, Mr. Nolan was born, uh, about a week after me. So, uh, you know, <laughs> we're, we're peers in, in that regard. You know, who else is born a week plus a couple more days is Kevin Smith. So, so, uh, Christopher Nolan, Kevin Smith and me, you know, we're all kind of birthday brothers. <laughs> well, Christopher Nolan and Kevin Smith are about as far removed in terms of filmmaking as you can possibly get. I, I know. It makes it makes you wonder about astrology, doesn't it? <laughs> I guess. It, maybe in the sense that they make films that are very definitely identifiably their own, I suppose, yes. is, is, is the linking uh, factor there. Yeah, but, and I don't, um, I don't make films that are identifiably my own, but I talk about them. So, you know. In a way that is identifiably your own. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's not go down too many uh, rabbit holes with with ridiculous trivia. Um, uh, but uh, I'm really curious to hear what you thought of this film, uh, Stephen. I, you know, I really enjoyed it in the cinema. It was a pleasure to see it again in the cinema. I've had a chance to see it twice, which I kind of feel might be necessary with this film. Um, but. Uh, 
and and that I'd like to know whether or not that's a drawback <laughs> because <laughs> I really struggle to understand it in places. And uh, yeah, so what did you make of it? I, I really enjoyed the film. I mean, I, I obviously took a cue from the fact that the title is a palindrome, which uh, kind of clues you right in from the get-go uh, that uh, that something about this film is going to be very geometric, perhaps, uh, in the way it's 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 formed and shaped. I mean, it, it, he's obsessed with the form of his films. I, I feel like, like Christopher Nolan maybe starts with a flowchart before he ever gets to a screenplay. Um <laughs> And, uh, and 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 maybe maybe that would be helpful to see that flowchart before seeing the film. But I, I I did enjoy it. I I I kind of try to imagine it as a like a high tech, you know, if James Bond is allowed to stray from its formula uh, and and get into some some more interesting, um, even more high tech and more high concept areas. That's maybe the best way to approach it. Uh, and uh, I I really enjoyed it. I mean, I I was able to kind of let some of the plot weirdness flow over me as I enjoyed the spectacle of it and the, the elaborately staged scenes which you have to pay close attention to because of course we return to them later in the film because this is a film that's sort of about time travel but also not at the same time it's 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 an interesting take on on the concept uh, of, of what traveling through time actually means and of course we, we've he's dealt with that before in interstellar um, and, uh, you know, Inception, which we'll talk about later, also kind of uh, dwells on some of those ideas. But but here it's 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 um, it's I don't know. It, it felt a little more low concept in some ways for a Christopher Nolan film, even though there's a lot of physics and, and quantum mechanics and stuff behind the mechanics of the plot. Uh, I, I felt that maybe it wasn't as grandiose as Inception or Interstellar, but 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 still fairly impressive in the way that. You know, we follow the protagonist, no name, just the protagonist, played by John David Washington from uh, Black Klansman, uh, a very, a very powerful and, and uh, charismatic uh, lead for this film. And, uh, you know, just just following him as he tries to pick up the threads along the way, I thought was uh, was was really quite entertaining. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's got a lot of charisma, uh, John David Washington. I'm really glad to see he's becoming like a real genuine star. This guy has, you know, obviously he, he's a chip off the old block from his father, Denzel. And uh, it's it's great to see him, uh, you know, in these these roles. He clearly, he, he delivers a certain kind of intensity and uh, and discipline. And I mean, that's what this character demands he is he is our our way into this story uh and it's you know and i think there is uh, a theory with plotting uh complex plots you know going back to the big sleep which is that so long as the lead character understands what's happening we in the audience will just go with it and he does seem to understand what's happening, even though there's a lot of conversation about, you know, plot and and uh, and exposition and and how the mechanics of time travel work. Um, that doesn't become as big a deal until about the third act. It, previous to that, it's really just a. I mean, I actually thought it was more like Mission Impossible than uh, than James Bond yes. in, in that regard, just because there's. An ensemble. There's more of an ensemble cast, and I think that's what makes it feel a little more like that other franchise that that now Tom Cruise owns. But um, yeah, it is a. Uh, I, I really, obviously, Nolan is really good at staging complex and entertaining action sequences that have a broader sort of philosophical bent. 
and uh, it's a really good-looking film. Uh, the special effects are very impressive. Nolan tends to eschew really obvious CGI. His films, I think, part of the, what makes his film so attractive is that uh, he's using these high-concept ideas, but he the world that he, he makes feels very real. I think he's been inspired by Michael Mann, for instance, in terms of, oh, of making a film that films, his films look like tactile. You feel like you can touch them. Um, he's got a new editor this time on his team, Jennifer Lame, who I believe worked on Marriage Story and Hereditary. So she's worked on smaller films, but it really clips along at a pace that really, really moves quickly. Uh, and it needs to move quickly, given it's the two and a half our time uh, frame of this film. He's also got another fresh collaborator. He frequently worked with Hans Zimmer in the past. I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about his, his, the great work that Hans Zimmer has done with Nolan in his previous films. But uh, composer Ludwig Göransson creates this much more jittery, intense like uh, score, which is, as with a lot of his films, very loud in the cinema. And mm -hmm. uh, that felt gave it a different pace as well and a different feeling. Um, we've talked about time travel movies before in our very first episode, going back to episode number one, and uh, we brought up Shane Carruth's low-budget film Primer from 2004. This is a very, I mean, I really felt like it was inspired by Primer. It had this, it wrestles with a lot of the same issues, uh, except Nolan has a budget that must be like a thousand times <laughs> what what Carruth played paid for for Primer. Um, if you know, if not, if not more, uh, and and you know, and he, he, it's it's a wonderful puzzle of a film. But that question remains, I think, is that if if the movie requires a second or third viewing to completely understand it, does that mean that it's um, you know that it somehow fails in its storytelling? It's funny. I, I watched uh, Mark Kermode, one of my favorite critics from uh, the UK, talk about about this very problem. He he wrestled with that as well. Do you? I mean, are you spending too much time during the film wondering what is happening, and does that take away from the pleasure of it? Well, uh, you know, Nolan makes what uh, more than one person has referred to as chess game movies, you know, where he's trying to, you know, be a move ahead of the viewer. And uh, I, I do feel that at, at points in this film, there are, are times where maybe he's maybe one or two moves too far ahead of the viewer. And, and you're right, it, it, it would take a second viewing to kind of realize because there are things that happen earlier in the film that don't resonate until later in the film and you have to think back to them and sometimes it's not always possible to do that to, to remember oh that moment in the opening attack scene uh that didn't quite seem to make a lot of sense will make more sense you know an hour later but by an hour later you've been uh deluged with so much exposition and characters and and technological details and plot details that it's it's hard to remember back to that that first scene uh, uh you know in the in the opera house when 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 things are not quite what they seem um so i i I, th I think he likes to have films that do s require repeat viewing just because you know the, he does he doesn't want to think of them as just something you watch and forget uh and but here i think he really does push the envelope on on how much you can take in 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 one pass through. Now I only saw it the one time. I was actually going to try and see it at the drive-in when I was in Cape Breton on the weekend, and it, it just didn't happen. But um, but uh, I, I do feel I was able to enjoy it enough the first time through. And and, and once I realize that I need to watch what's happening very closely because it's going to pay off later in the film. Um, but not everybody's going to be in that mind frame, so it is good to to keep that in mind when you're watching it. Uh, 
but uh, but you know, I th- I, th- I think I cottoned onto that pretty quickly over the course of this film. Well, that's that that's good. <laughs> that's good. I, I I was kind of on the fence, um, but I also remember we've talked about spy movies. One of our episodes we devoted to spy thrillers, and that that is a hallmark of the spy thriller that it has a convoluted plot that you don't always know what's going on, and and maybe he's just double down on that, you know, by adding the time travel elements, he's just decided, okay, well, you know, I'll, I'll offer as much information as I can. And maybe he's so clever that it all just seems obvious to him, but I, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, uh, you know, take for example, Inception, his blockbuster from 10 years ago, Inception arrived the summer of 2010 and was a huge hit. Uh, again, a unique, a different kind of film that had his team of sort of spy kind of characters agents uh, looking to bring a thought uh, uh, suggest a thought uh, in the sleeping mind of their target so basically they 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 travel through dreams and and then there's the levels of dreams there are different levels deeper and deeper levels and there are different rules about time again nolan interested in in uh, non-linear storytelling and interested in the effects of time and how that changes our perceptions of what we're seeing and doing. When you add to that the the dream logic, uh, it is an exceptionally confusing uh, <laughs> film. And I'm trying to remember how I felt the first time I saw Inception. And I think that I think I got it more or less. It definitely helped to watch it more than once. I've seen since 2010. I've probably seen Inception four or five times because I own it on Blu-ray, and it's an amazing film. The Leonardo DiCaprio, and I mean, it has. It's a bit chilly too, in some respects, but, but I, yeah, what, I mean, when you think of Inception, uh, Stephen, did did you get it right away? Did you feel like it needed more? Did you feel confused by any of that, or did it just, uh, did it, uh, you know, just immediate when you walked out of the cinema the first time? Did you feel like you just got it? Well, I, I think with Inception, uh, one of the benefits there is that it's always moving forward, even though it's moving forward simultaneously on multiple levels. Once they really go into the, the, the main bulk of the, the, the story where they're in multiple dreamscapes, which move it, which move at varying degrees of, of the time elapsing. Uh, it, but you know, it was always kind of moving forward. So my, I think my brain was able to kind of move with it. And uh, the, the distinctions between the different levels was clear enough that, uh, that it, it may not have been straightforward, but, uh, you know, I felt I could always kind of catch up with it. I, I, I've seen it, I think, twice uh, since I saw it in the theater. Um, and uh, I don't feel like I picked up a whole lot of new understanding uh, on second time and third time through. I think I may have picked up some new details and things like that. But, um, but I, you know, I, I did appreciate that it was clever and that it was well, uh, you know, well done and uh, i like the fact that one of the dreams is a nod to honor majesty's secret service which <laughs> which you know i mean I, I think i was started laughing in the theater just going oh my gosh i can't believe he's actually recreating a james bond movie within one of the layers of of this movie but if, you know maybe uh maybe the uh, um maybe the character uh i'm trying to remember the, the industrialist that he's he's going after i think was it um was Killian Murphy? Killian yeah, Murphy, yeah. yes. And then, and then Ken Watanabe was also uh, there. Yes, because he was the one who had, the team. he'd hired the team to try and yes. plant this thought uh, in Killian Murphy, not to, to, to basically break up his father's industrial empire, 
for mm. his for his own benefit, you know, so he won't wipe him out of out of business. You know, fairly straightforward industrial sabotage kind of plot, but then given this, you know, multi layered dreamscape uh, and uh, you know technolo- technological uh, kind of twist, I love that they I love that they don't go too heavily into the how of it in uh, in and it, which is something they also that intended they just kind of they don't really explain it to to the uh, to the nth degree so you just have to kind of take it on faith that the people who are in the film know what they're doing and have this technology that they understand even if it doesn't necessarily make sense complete sense to the viewer that's that's a something it shares with tenet and i, I kind of took it as um like when when doctor who has to kind of deal with weird time uh, contradictions. They just write it off as timey wimey wibbly wobbly time <laughs> stuff, and you just kind of have to take some things on faith. And I, I, I can, I can allow my brain to do that to a certain degree with films like Inception and and Tenet. Yeah, I think I think you're probably right. And in fact, even in Tenet, a supporting character at one point says, "Don't try to understand it like <laughs> that." And I think that's an advice for the audience itself. There are things that you just have to, as you say, take on faith. And and it, uh, there was the other lines like, uh, "What is it? Um, ignorance is our ammunition," or something like. There is there's a certain amount of like nudge nudge wink wink to the audience like you know we know this is all a little bit silly just go with it um and uh but you know something you said earlier Stephen, is really true is that i think nolan is fascinated with his role as an artist and as a filmmaker and the form the form of, of his films is so important like i feel like with inception he is uh you know he he's He's using dreams and editing between dreams. He's using film editing to basically uh, manifest his his ideas about dreams. And, you know, and he's using the film, you know, he, he's sort of... And he's giving us hints as we go through Tenet, which moves forward, uh, to look out for scenes that look a little weird, that things are going backwards. And then, I mean, if you're... If you're paying attention at all, or maybe if you, if like you know us, you've watched a lot of movies, you start to notice like, okay, I see what he's doing. It's almost like he's having a conversation with his audience about the form of film while he's entertaining us with the content. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about uh, Interstellar uh, later in the show, but but you know that sort of the tesseract the, the where where Matthew McConaughey finds himself after entering the black hole. Um, I feel like that's sort of been a model for Nolan and kind of an obsession for him from the get go. Uh, and that was maybe the first time he tried to physically manifest it in, um, in a film, but that's kind of, you know, the, the puzzle box uh, multi-layered approach that he's after um, kind of made manifest in interstellar, but, but, you know, clearly that's what he's kind of doing with, with the, the way he's, he's structured these films. I, I mean, like I say, uh, uh Inception keeps moving forward, uh, so that that's an, that helps us kind of stick with it, the momentum of it. Of course, Tenet moves in different directions at the same time. I'm I'm still I'm gonna have to see it again to really parse the final the final action scene, shall we say, the the, the assault uh, that that takes place at the end of the film. Uh, you know, I'm still trying to kind of parse everything that happens in that sequence uh, in my head. And I think that I definitely will take a, another viewing for me to fully get what actually happened in that final scene. I mean, I get, I get what the result was of, of this mission that takes place at the end of the film, but uh, the mechanics of it, the clockwork of it, uh, some of it did actually, you know, did elude me. 
Yeah, I felt the same way about that ending. I, and seeing the second time, I just felt like, you know, you don't actually see the antagonists very much. Like, who who are these people they're fighting against? Are they, <laughs> they must be working for the Kenneth Branagh's Russian uh, arms dealer, but, but are they, do they really know what he has planned, which is, you know, without spoiling too much, but it's pretty apocalyptic. Um, I, I like, I don't know where they were or who they were. And I felt, I felt a little, the impersonality of it really, it made, it didn't, the last, the, the conclusion didn't engage me emotionally too much. And I think, I think my, if I had a, a gripe against Tenet, that's that's what it is, is that I didn't feel as emotionally engaged by it as I have some of his other earlier films. Yeah, the the personality of uh, of Washington as a protagonist and Robert Pattinson, who's very good here as his kind of sidekick, or is he, uh, Neil, <laughs> um, uh, have great chemistry together. And, and, you know, when they're working in 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 tandem, you know, the, the film is, is really kind of this enjoyable caper film or, or what have you. And then Kenneth Branagh is terrifying as Sator, the, uh, the Russian arms dealer. He's, he's really menacing. I haven't seen him be this evil, maybe not ever. Um, and, uh, he, you know, he seems well suited to working with, uh, with Nolan, but, um, but yeah, the, the personality kind of goes out the window in the mechanics of that final uh, assault scene. Um, you know, but that's, that's true I, I felt, a lot of these films. I, yeah. Yeah, I felt more for Elizabeth Debicki on the boat with, you know, trying to negotiate and figure things out with Kenneth Branagh's character. Uh, I, that was, to me, that was the heart of the thing, her part of the mission. And uh, and I guess I think Nolan wants her to be kind of the heart, the heart of the story being her love for her son. Uh, but I feel like that's kind of on the other side of like bulletproof glass most of the time. I can see it. I just don't know that I, I feel it. Yeah, no, I, I, I find that the, this the, there is very little sort of real human emotion happening in this film, which is, is definitely one of its drawbacks. Um, you know, I can enjoy, enjoy it for what it is as this, uh, you know, complex puzzle. I mean, the name Tenet actually comes, I mean, it's a palindrome, which is in itself a kind of a puzzle, but it's actually taken from an ancient crossword puzzle that was found on the wall at Pompeii or something like that, which, which also included the name Sator was actually part of that puzzle as well. And I think there's a couple other names, uh, in the in the movie that were taken from this, you know, word grid uh, that was found uh, in in ancient Roman times. So, I, you know, I, I like you know that kind of layer of cleverness, but um, it's 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 there there isn't a lot to connect my uh, my heart to this movie. That's for sure. So you're listening to Lens Me Your Ears. Today we're talking about the films of Christopher Nolan. I wanted to say a few things about Nolan. He is British, brought up in the UK, but I believe he's both British and American. Uh, he's married to Emma Thomas, who is his producer, and together they have a production company called Syncopy. He frequently writes with his brother Jonathan, who is a creative force in Hollywood himself. Jonathan Nolan produces and writes Westworld for HBO. Uh, I was thinking how much fun a, a Nolan Brothers podcast would be about their favorite movies, because they are clearly, clearly lovers of film. Um, now, Nolan started in London making short films in the late 90s. He has three shorts credited to him around the late 90s on IMDb. One of them is a black and white short called Doodlebug that's available <laughs> on the Criterion channel that I watched. It's quite clever. Uh, 
And uh, yeah, as I mentioned, he's carved out that rarest of things. He's a brand as a filmmaker who likes to make big budget blockbusters. There's almost no one like him in Hollywood. I think you could call some peers, uh, you know, David Fincher, Quentin Tarantino, even Steven Soderbergh. But I don't think they work with the kinds of budgets that Nolan is comfortable with. Um, and, uh, you know, I really, I really like that Nolan respects genre and, uh, and I like that, you know, obviously I like that he's interested in identity and metaphysics and nonlinear storytelling, but, but he's really a genre filmmaker. Now following from 1998 was his first film and it's a very short film. It's like an hour and 10 minutes. So it's just barely a feature. Um, and, but it f sort of foreshadows some of his Hollywood success. It's shot in black and white. It's about a young Brit played by Jeremy Theobald, who actually has a small role in Tenet. I, I recognized him in one of the scenes in Tenet. Yeah, um, bl blink and you'll miss it, for sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and it's, he, his interest, he's a writer and he is interested in people. He likes to follow people through the streets of London until one of the people he's following spots him. The other guy's name is Cobb, interestingly, the same name that Leonardo DiCaprio had in Inception. Um, he's a thief who brings into his life, a, uh, he brings this young man into his life as kind of an apprentice. Uh, it's, I noticed, and this is a, probably a coincidence and I'm sure it is, but one of the, they break into apartments. One of the apartments they break into has a bat symbol on the door. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, so then we flash forward where the young man has taken on a new identity, has cut his hair and he's wearing a suit. So the story is kind of told in three different time periods. Uh, and, uh, I just, you know, clearly Nolan was interested in nonlinear storytelling i don't understand why he would mix up the time periods other than just give himself a challenge to do it as a storyteller but it does change your perspective on the relationships between the characters and it reveals things later in the story that might have been revealed earlier if he had done it in a linear way so yeah i mean it's it's chilly neo-noir uh in terms of a style which is a genre that he had returned to in memento which was his big breakout film his second feature um, but yeah, I, I, it's fun to see following just to, to realize that he had a lot of these ideas in place already. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to see him just doing an unabashed film noir, you know, cause obviously there are elements of that throughout his films and, you know, extending into the, the three Batman films, which he made. And, and, um, you know, certainly it's, it's there in, in inception and, and, uh, and memento definitely. Um, but but here it's kind of more of an unabashed homage of sorts. But given that personal approach to storytelling, which uh, has become his uh, big stock and trade over the course of his career, I I really enjoyed this film. Like it's it's obviously very low budget, but it makes the most of 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 the budget restrictions. I think he acted as his own cinematographer as well on this film. Uh, you know, given that it was made for next to no money, and it, it's it's uh, it's interesting to see how inventive he is when he doesn't have a $200 million budget that, that he's, he is a very resourceful filmmaker and that, you know, when he does have obviously a bigger playground to play in with some of his later films, you know, he, he's still finding ways to, to do it in an authentic and uh, realistic way. Um, you know, all that's here and, and, and Doodlebug, which I believe was probably a, a, an extra on uh, the following uh, criterion put out a following disc. And I think it was an extra on there. One of his early short films. And that has this kind of Kafka esque, uh, but also very funny kind of plot about a guy trying to kill a bug in his apartment. Um, you know, that, uh, that there is a sense of humor there that, that does persist throughout his films, even though, 
Um, we don't often think of his films as being funny. Um, there's humor in all of them, and uh, it's it's a little bit more to the to the fore here and in, in that short film that uh, the Doodlebug as well. Uh, and it's it's definitely worth seeing. It's it's like you say, it's it's short. It's it's like seventy two minutes long or something like that. Um, and uh, it's it's very tight and very uh, very concise, but 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 very entertaining. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, speaking of humor, Stephen, I wanted to to say there was a moment in Tenet that I laughed out loud. Not a lot of people in the cinema I was in were laughing. I mean, it was obviously it was a socially distant cinema screening, so there weren't a lot of people there. But uh, but there's a scene where a plane drives through a fence and and scatters cars in many directions <laughs> as it plows into a building, like a full sized jumbo jet and it's i was just and this while um gold bars bullion is being kicked out of one of the doors and uh, i just thought that was so funny i just i was laughing a lot at that and and there's also a scene where some some airport workers are, are checking out the gold and and a cop runs out of the car and goes like no 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 <laughs> <laughs> it's anyway that i i was chuckling a lot at that speaking of like places where there is humor in nolan films um, yeah, um, now I also watched, we also, I mean, I, I think, I don't know if you revisited it, Stephen, but I watched Memento from 2000, uh, 20 years ago he made Memento, and once again, Nolan is playing with the form of cinema to tell his story in a really clever way. The sto- the film is told backwards, so, so each film, each scene starts and then finishes, and then we go to the next scene, which is actually the previous scene. It's a little hard to describe, but once you're in it, you'll get it. It's amazing how quickly you pick up what he's trying to do with a fairly complex um, structure, and it mirrors, the. we get the vicarious experience of the lead character's condition. Leonard, played um, by uh, Guy Pierce, is a, uh, a man looking for revenge for the death of his wife, and he has no long-term memory, no short-term memory. So he's constantly writing notes to himself about, about he can't learn, he can't learn anything new. And so it's kind of this tragic condition that he's in, but he has a mission, he has a reason to do what he's doing. And uh, so he constantly is learning as we learn, as we go along with him. We are in the same boat as Leonard as we watch the film. Um, Memento, I mean, it, 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 people must have written theses about this film because it is so well done. Um, and it's, it's very dark. It's a very dark noir, but, uh, it is, it is terrific. It has a great role. One, maybe the best role in his career for Joey Pantoliano, otherwise known, known as Joey Pants in filmmaking circles. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a really terrific film. Oh, and Stephen uh, Tobolowsky as Sammy Jenkins, uh, who who uh, Leonard had met years before as when he was an insurance investigator. This is a story that he tells. The one part of the film that actually goes forward uh, throughout. Uh, so you've got, again, time being messed with by Nolan. It, it's a really wonderful film. Yeah, it, it's interesting that it's it's got this incredible forward momentum, even as the story is kind of moving back. I mean, it, it, it's almost like a foreshadowing of Tenet, you know, where the, it really has this incredible forward momentum, even as the, the scenes are being sort of played out in reverse. Um, you know, it, I mean, it's the I think the the gimmick, um, so to speak, comes from uh, there's a Harold Pinter play called Betrayal, which also became a film with, I think, Jeremy Irons, uh, where the scenes are played out in reverse. But it's you know, it's obviously it's a play. It's it's much more 
compartmentalized. It's not really playing around with time the way this film is. Because, of course, uh, Memento also has these black and white scenes where Leonard, Guy Pierce's character, is on the phone with someone who he he doesn't even rem- he's telling him his story, but doesn't even remember who he's talking to or, you know, from the start of the conversation. Uh, and, and so, you know, you've got again, you've got sort of the scenes working against each other, but also with each other at the same time. And um, I'm, I'm guessing a lot of this has to do with the sort of simpatico relationship that Christopher Nolan has with his brother, Jonathan, that they're like kind of two sides of the same brain in a way. Uh, and uh, I, I wonder how much I mean, I mean. Obviously, Christopher Nolan gets a lot of the credit, but I wonder like how much Jonathan uh, has to do with helping him form, you know, these mini universes in each of these films, you know, these hall of mirrors, if you will, uh, that they construct uh, every time they work together. But, um, you know, so so uh, it's 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 a wonderful uh, sort of professional debut, if you will. Uh, and uh, I just remember being totally thrilled by it at the time watching it now. uh 20 years later oh my gosh it's <laughs> hard to believe that um the transitions feel a bit clunky now and I, and maybe it's just because his later films have become so much smoother and, and adept at kind of transitioning through this kind of storytelling but that that doesn't really um diminish my enjoyment of the film i still enjoyed it uh, quite a bit you know mostly because of the performances joe pantaleano is so good at this kind of weasley character and he's his casting is perfect because He's, he always plays a guy where you don't know if you can trust him or not. And, you know, nobody plays Weasley better than Joe Pandoliano. And, you know, when you throw in a character who can't even remember meeting him and doesn't know who to trust at all, it's 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 just perfect. Because Guy Pierce, I mean, you know, he's he was a, he was an insurance investigator. He wasn't like a private eye or a cop or anything like that. But but, you know, he's able to take care of himself. But he also has this kind of wide eyed innocence about him as he has to relearn everything you know with each new scene and and i just thought that was a great contrast and carrie ann moss is great as as the femme fatale um who uh may or may not be using him to her her own advantage over the course of the film and and uh i i found that watching it again i i paid more attention to her role in the film and uh and the levels of duplicity going on with her which is uh something else i could enjoy yeah, no, absolutely. She is she's great. Um, now, in two thousand and two, Nolan made Insomnia, which I think is probably his only work for hire film in Hollywood. I after Memento, I guess he could prove to the the studios that he could do big budget uh, procedural, and that's what it is. Uh, it's a remake of a film that came out in nineteen ninety seven. The original Insomnia is available on the Criterion channel. Uh, it's a wonderful film with Stellan Skarsgård, a c- super creepy daytime noir. And it's it's a film I really love. And watching the remake, uh, you know, I I can appreciate what Nolan's doing. I appreciate some of the, the style. Certainly I appreciate Wally Pfister's uh, cinematography. But it does feel like kind of, a, in some ways, a generic uh, procedural, you know, cop drama uh, you you get you get uh, Al Pacino and Robin Williams together. You know there's going to be things to enjoy, and the cinematography, the sense of location is great. Um, I really liked seeing Hilary Swank in her role and Maura Tierney, and uh, and and the the long serving character actor Paul Dooley is really good in the film. But uh, but you know it's it's um, I still feel the original is a way better film, and this is the one I would say that is probably the least essential in Nolan's. Uh, 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 you know, 
uh, filmography. Yeah, it, it's very much uh, kind of by the numbers American remake of a European film. They they sand down some of the creepiness of uh, Al Pacino's character Will Dormer, whose last name, of course, is French for to sleep. You know, which is a bit nail yeah. on the head. Yeah, head on there. the nose. Um, yeah, and uh, you know, but but it's. It's a big studio job, and it's not hard to see why, um, you know, why Nolan took the job, a chance to work with some great stars, and 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 tell a, you know, a, an interesting film noirish kind of story in an, in an unusual setting. It's set in Alaska, filmed in British Columbia, um, hence a lot of Canadian actors like Jay Brazo and Lauren Cardinal showing up in uh, secondary roles. Um, but it you know it looks effectively remote enough to to feel like Alaska in the summertime, uh, and uh, having been a you know close to the arctic circle in the summer myself on a trip to iceland um when there was no night out i could you know the, the first time i watched this i had never experienced it i have experienced it uh when i watched it the second time so it, it is interesting to go through it and and feel that sense of fatigue that you get as a newcomer and not used to that you know very unusual time shift that you get uh when you're in a land where there's no night uh for 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 weeks at a time uh but I, I do feel like the yeah the original is is a better film. It's it's creepier, it's grungier, um, and uh, the uh, the main character is a lot more ambivalent. Um, or um, that's not the word. Ambiguous is the word I'm looking for. Uh, whereas you know Will Dormer, you know he was a crooked cop who was doing the right thing to put the right guy behind bars kind of thing. But uh, there's a lot more going on in in the uh, the European version with Stellan Skarsgård. But Having said that, I did enjoy it as just a straightforward detective movie. Uh, th- th- there is some visual style, and, and the scenery is, is stunning, and it's it's great to look at. Uh, I guess Maura Tierney's character had a lot more to do in an earlier cut of the film. Uh, it's sad that her character, the innkeeper, kind of gets cut back. But uh, but yeah, it's it's it is a minor film, but still still highly enjoyable. And and uh, and Robin Williams is great as a very creepy. Uh, psychopathic mystery writer. I, I, I like in the uh, in one of the extras. You know, they're interviewing Robin Williams, and he talks about how, you know, his scenes with Pacino. It's a case of Mr. Method versus Mr. Whatever. Which <laughs> is how he described they're they're working together. Um, you know, it's it's. I think it's probably the only time they ever worked together, and it was a very unusual pairing. But but I I find that the the contrast between them. Uh, makes those scenes very effective. So, you know, it's, but it's, it's one of the few times that the, the star power of the leads is, takes more precedence than the, the filmmaking behind the camera. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm with you there, I think. Uh, now, um, we weren't going to talk a lot about the three Batman movies that Nolan directed. Batman Begins from 2005, The Dark Knight from 2008, and The Dark Knight Rises from 2012. He also actually has a story credit for Man of Steel, the Superman movie that Zack Snyder directed. Uh, he, he co-wrote it with David S. Goyer. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think it's because we, we've talked about superhero movies in the past. Uh, we could do a whole episode just on those three movies, I think. Uh, and I, I, a lot has been said about about the the Dark Knight trilogy, and I think I mean just just I, all I'm gonna say is that I think the second one is the best of the three. If you're thinking of dipping your toes in, the second one is the sort of is the the quintessential Batman movie. It's yet to be bettered. Uh, we'll see what the new one uh, that's coming with uh, Robert Pattinson has uh, has to offer. But uh, but the three of them make for a really interesting film. Uh, 
the the storytelling is a lot more linear for Nolan, but uh, but they are super exciting, well made superhero movies. They're kind of basically procedural crime thrillers where the lead character wears a mask. I mean, that's more or less what you're getting. Uh, and, and they're wonderful, but uh, yeah, that's all I really I have to say. Yeah, I enjoyed them a lot. I have not returned to them though. I've not gone back and rewatched the the Batman trilogy, the Dark Knight trilogy uh, since I saw them in theaters. I I love Batman. I you know grew up with Batman, and for some reason, I just have not felt the urge to go back and revisit those films. But then again, I have you know the only one of the earlier films I watch with any regularity is Batman Returns, uh, the really twisted Tim Burton one with the Penguin and Catwoman. You know, I, I've probably <laughs> uh-huh. seen that one twice since I saw it in the theater and I saw it in the theater twice. Um, you know, the, the, the sheer twisted, bizarre nature of that film, uh, probably interests me more than the fact that it's a Batman movie. Uh, I, I imagine I will at some point I may, uh, we, we may do a Batman show when that, uh, Robert Pattinson, the Batman, uh, comes out, uh, down the pipe. There you that go. might be a good time There's to revisit them. But, um, but uh, you know, I was, I, I don't think I, I had high hopes for them, and I think they were pretty much met, especially uh, especially with the second one, Heath Ledger's uh, unforgettable Joker. Um, you know, the the third one, it gets a bit convoluted. Did it really need Bane and a Catwoman and Raz Al Ghul, who uh, you know would have been a, an interesting enough character on his own, but, but maybe not as familiar to those who don't know the comics so well. Anyway, it it's it's um it's a bit overstuffed. And uh, and you know ends on a kind of a an odd unusual note, but uh, but uh, I'll I'll definitely enjoy them when I get around to watching them again. I just haven't had the urge to, to revisit anytime soon. Now we should talk a little bit about the Prestige. This is some people say Nolan's crowning achievement as a film. It does crystallize his thematic truth, maybe better than any other film he's done. I will acknowledge that. I'm not as huge a fan of it as some of his other films. Um, It is about competing magicians and the way they trick the audience into believing something that isn't happening. And and it pays homage to that trick. It celebrates. It's It's like Nolan is saying, as an artist, this is what I'm here for. This is what I will do for my audience. I can appreciate that, again, form and content. But I also feel like the film plays a little bit of an unfair trick on its audience by revealing itself to be a science fiction movie. At the end, when it wasn't that previously, maybe, I mean, if you if you know me, you know that I might be the last person to complain about that kind of revelation, but it felt a little bit like I, I'd i been fooled in a way I didn't like. And uh, based, I mean, this is a movie that's based on magic not being real, and then it hinges in the final conclusion that there is magic in the world. Uh, and I, I guess I just struggled with that. But uh, I also appreciate that there's a larger theme about sacrifice being necessary for art. But uh, yeah, I, I think you're a bigger fan of this film than I am, Stevens. So I don't know. Do you, what do you want to say about the Prestige from 2006? Yeah, you know what? I I thought I liked it more than I did, to be honest. I rewatched it uh, just a few days ago, and yeah, I, I came away with it, it. Just left me feeling kind of dry. Um, there, there really is very little human emotion in this film, and, and obviously that's going to be leveled at. Nolan repeatedly over the course of his filmography, but I, but I, I, I didn't really feel any connection to anybody in this film at all. Maybe Michael Caine's Cutter, who's kind of the mentor to to the magicians, but uh, aside, but, but maybe that's just because it's Michael Caine. You know, it's just always great to see him in in a in a in a major role, and here he does actually have a fairly significant part to play. But uh, 
Yeah, this 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 left me a little cold the second time I watched it. I think the first time I watched it, I was caught up in the mystery of it and um, the unfolding of it. But uh, once the mechanics of the story are out of the way and you know what they are, there isn't a whole lot else to, to kind of chew on in this movie. Um, and uh, I feel like lately I've just seen a lot of uh, sort of reassessment of it uh, happening on like, you know, Facebook movie groups and, and people saying that this is his real masterpiece or whatever. And I was like, well, it's, it's, it's well constructed. It looks amazing. The period uh, recreation is fantastic, but I, I feel like uh, the whole might be less than the sum of its parts when it comes to the prestige at this point. But, and, and, and I really, yeah, this, the second time around I felt the trickery that, um, you know, the, the way the rug gets pulled out from under us it, it, it's not that effective at the end of the film. I feel like maybe the Nolans maybe wrote themselves into a bit of a corner <laughs> with this and, and, and decided to do this Hail Mary pass with the, you know, this Tesla creation and what it actually does. Um, and it kind of makes you, you know, you have to kind of reevaluate everything you know about the Hugh Jackman character over the, the course of the film. And, uh, I, don't, I don't know that it all completely lines up. Well, we're winding down our look at the films of Christopher Nolan here on this special edition of Lens Me Your Ears. And uh, we're going we're gonna to finish off with two films that uh, probably have the most heart of any of his films. Not that that's necessarily a crucial element in every film, but I find that uh, the most emotional resonance uh, to be found uh, will be found in these next two films, Interstellar and Dunkirk. And, you know, Interstellar is, uh, you know, in some ways an homage to one of his biggest influences. It's uh, Stanley Kubrick in 2001, A Space Odyssey, taking some of the ideas from that film and, and taking them to a, to a completely uh, different level, maybe with not quite as spiritual or astro-spiritual, if you will, as 2001 with his ambiguous uh, star child uh, finale. But, uh, but a very affecting and uh, well-thought-out uh, look at what interstellar travel could mean um, with some help from some unknown forces from beyond. Uh, instead of the monolith, we have a, a wormhole that appears just at the moment that the planet Earth in a not-too-distant future is kind of facing its final days and uh, humanity is looking to the stars uh, as a, a way of escape. And... Uh, Matthew McConaughey plays Cooper, a, a former uh, pilot and astronaut who is retired to a life of farming and belief that any hopes of uh, a space program reemerging are, are far behind him. But uh, it turns out uh, with a little uh, nudging from unseen forces, he's directed towards a, a secret NASA project to uh, to explore this wormhole and find inhabitable life uh, through uh, through this uh, rip in space and time and then hopefully uh, find a new home for humanity, whether or not it's taking people off the earth or starting new civilizations. Um, you know, it's one of the, uh, the de moral debates found within the film and it's, it's exceedingly well executed. Uh, there are some, some great surprises along the way and, uh, some very uh, affecting performances. And McC McConaughey is, is brilliant as Cooper. It's one of his best performances. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I would say, although 2001 is definitely an influence, uh, I feel like this film is more in, in a type or a style with uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Contact. Uh, both, well, Contact especially because it's got that father-daughter dynamic, which is, is doubled down here because there are two sets of fathers and daughters 
here. You've got uh, McConaughey and his daughter who he has to leave behind in order to try and save, you know, the humanity, including his daughter. Um, and then she's later played by Jessica Chastain. Uh, and then you've got uh, Michael Caine and Anne Hathaway's uh, father-daughter connection. And, uh, and it, yeah, and it really explores what relativity means when it comes to time and distance in a way that I've never seen in a film before. Um, and it's, uh, it's really, it's really touching. I, I felt I've seen it a number of times and of all of Nolan's films, this is the one that increases my emotional connection to it increases over time. This has also got my favorite score of all of Nolan's films. Uh, Hans Zimmer's score where he creates this sort of organ score, which feels like very churchy intense churchy music uh mm. which i feel brings a level of emotion to the film that otherwise wouldn't uh you know it wouldn't have uh an early role as well for fans of timothy chalamet uh he he is uh he, he is plays the the younger son who eventually you know uh grows up becomes C casey affleck um but uh yeah it is a really it it, it, it scratches my interest in in science fiction and space and and it has a very plausible vision of a climate crisis future which is also part of what makes it really uh intense um and uh yeah the the hoyta van hoytema's uh cinematography is is unparalleled this is really something something special about the, about the film um and uh yeah, and I, I uh, again, it was another movie that I think benefited from more viewings. Like, I not only did I feel more emotionally connected to it from future viewings, the whole Tesseract thing that you were talking about towards the end felt entirely, um, uh, it made more sense to me, having seen it a second and, a, and I think a third time. Um, uh, the sci-fi geek in me also really enjoyed tars and case they're the most awkward clunky looking robot helpers since like <laughs> huey dewey and louie from silent running um they just i mean they're very funny they're great presences and they got good voices uh voice actors for them but um but yeah they just make no sense from a from a uh uh practical perspective uh yeah Anyway, so so that is Interstellar. I I really I really love the film, and although I know a lot of people are a little more critical of it than I am, uh, Dunkirk was the film from 2017 that um, really it earned him I think the most Academy Award nominations. It felt like the movie that he is his prestige drama, the one that uh, that eschews science fiction and more you know uh, fantasy elements for a story. Of, uh, based on truth uh, of what happened in the in World War II, the uh, the evacuation of Dunkirk across the British Channel. Of course, he can't help but tell his story in a non-linear fashion, which gives it a wonderful. Um, there's wonderful moments of understanding when the, the the timelines in the film overlap, and I don't want to say too much about it if you haven't seen Dunkirk because it's a really great way of storytelling which maybe may have not been essential he could have told this in a much more linear way but it does um when i clued in about halfway through what he was doing i just found it that much more delightful even as i was completely involved in the story of multiple different characters and how they all reacted to what was happening on that day i mean it is it is a film of reaction uh of desperation and uh you know 
it's what what did you think of Dunkirk, Stephen? I mean, I, you've seen it a couple times now <laughs> yourself. Yeah, in fact, I just watched it uh, watched it yesterday, and uh, I, you know, I, I loved it in the theater. I, I felt very moved by this story that I I knew about from you know photo some black and white photos and newsreel footage, but I didn't really have a good grasp of the the enormity of the undertaking that this was. And I don't even know that this film completely captures that because you know there's many hundreds of boats making multiple trips across the English Channel in and out of a war zone to bring the soldiers home and back to safety so that, you know, the actual offensive that would end the second world war would actually begin. Um, you know, th- this film, even though it, it has a lot of scope and it captures the, what happened on the ocean, on the shore, on the, in the air, I guess maybe that's a, a bit of a Churchillian, uh, reference there, but, um, uh, I, I certainly uh, got a lot more out of it the second time around. Uh, the DVD has some great extras that go into the historical detail that uh, they went for here in terms of just, every, you know, from from the uniforms to the planes to the boats and everything like that. And it's it's really a remarkable achievement. But uh, I, I feel like it does have a, a lot of humanity in it. Uh, Mark Rylance, of course, has a lot to do with that. I think he's really the emotional core of this movie. He's so wonderful. That's Mr. Dawson, who takes his, his boat across and then suffers a, a, a loss along the way. I, I just, um, you know, I, I can watch him do just about anything on film these days. Uh, but uh, but also Tom Hardy in the sky and uh, Fionn Whitehead, who I haven't seen a lot of, but uh, he's very good as Tommy as the soldier that we kind of, he becomes our eyes and ears to this amazing uh, moment in history. And it's uh, even if you don't know all the history behind it or the effort that went into making it uh, with as little computer interference as possible, um, I find it's it's still a fairly rousing and 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 and, and straightforward telling of, of this uh, this moment. Yeah, I, I uh, it's funny how um, Tom Hardy, who's become one of, of the biggest stars in Hollywood, for uh, you know he's able to open films uh, thanks to things like um, Venom and uh, Mad Max how often he covers his face, <laughs> you know, in movies. Like, and that was true in Bane, with Bane in the, in the, uh, the third Dark Knight film. And it's a case here. He, ha- he wears his, uh, his, uh, his rebreather uh, uh, mask, uh, aviator's uh, mask for most of the film. Um, and, but it's still, it's still Tom Hardy. He can do a lot with his eyes, and that's what he's yeah. required to do in this, in this, uh, this feature. Yeah, it's, um, it's a pretty incredible film, and it's got a great cast. Kenneth Branagh again from Tenet is here uh, as a, a military commander, trying basically laying out the details of what they face, how many uh, British soldiers are stranded uh, on a beach, and uh, and I really, I think, you know despite all the impressive scale and achievement on display in terms of the technical ways the film works. Uh, I think that Nolan does a good job of showing how death can come from any time, from anywhere. And I think that's part of the lesson of the film is like the, the, there is a uh, arbitrary nature to all of this that is really shocking. And, and I think the suspense of the film is really well sustained. Again, a nod to Hans Zimmer for the score, this sort of like, percussive pulsing score which a with a terrifying sort of bernard herman-esque edge to it um it's it's really something again with all of nolan's films i would really recommend any chance you get to see it on a big screen like 
I, I noticed that Cineplex often brings his movies back to the cinema. And I think if you've only watched it, I mean, it's great to see it on Blu-ray with have all those extras as well. I own uh, many of them on in my library. But if you do get a chance to see it in IMAX, especially in IMAX, it is an entirely different experience. Um, and I, I think that's true of Tenet. I think that's true of, of Dunkirk, Interstellar, Inception, the Batman movies. I mean, yeah, it's uh, Nolan makes movies. He uses IMAX cameras. He makes movies for the IMAX cinema experience. And, uh, and that's where I recommend people watch his movies. Thank you for tuning in to Lens Me Your Ears this week. That's been our look at the films of Christopher Nolan, a very intriguing and endlessly rewatchable filmography, and hopefully you'll be inspired to go seek out some of his films. With any luck in a theater, some of them have been coming back uh, in this age of COVID, or check out Tenet once or twice or maybe even three times to get the full gist of it. Um, my name is Stephen Cook, and uh, you can reach me on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. My name is Karsten Knox, and I am also on Twitter by the name of my blog, Flaw in the Iris. And you can find Lens Me Your Ears on Twitter, at Lens Me Your Ears, or on our Facebook page. And uh, if you'd like to help us out, we have a Patreon account. You can contribute a few bucks, too, and uh, help us with our production costs. And also, thanks to the folks who put everything together at The Village Sound and CKDU 88.1 FM, who let us use their studio when the studio is available uh, during normal times and air us every other Tuesday at 5.30 p.m. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. Ciao. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.